This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. I think this is a pretty big one today, Tom. What do you think? Yeah, we were just talking about this right before we locked on that um, there's a lot here. And obviously, this is an um, individual that had a big effect on history, you know, particularly in the um, you know, 20th century and stuff like that. So today, we're going to be looking at Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. Funny that you say that, like had a big impact in history. I, there's a very famous quote by Winston Churchill that said that, History will be kind to me, for I shall write it. I mean, he's a huge figure. Just, just you know, researching this, and we've obviously, uh, you and I have taught about Churchill at various times in history and various topics, and you know, obviously in American history as well as in world history, it's, it's a huge figure. But he wasn't just a politician. You know, he was also a very known author. Um, yeah. written, you know, he wrote tons of books. And you said the quotes, there are so many quotes attributed so many to him too, that we, like, you use in a lot of different times. I know just in government classes, you use quotes yeah. that he said. And like, this is 20th century history. He was a huge impact. And it obviously ripple Absolutely. effects into the 21st century. Also, his face is recognizable. When people see him, they're like, oh, that's Churchill. Or they yeah. might not even know the name, let's say. So I do this thing in class where I just show like famous images and like the students might not necessarily know him, but like, oh, like, oh, that's that British guy. Like they know yeah. something about it. That guy. You just tell looking at his face that this is, you know, there's something about this guy that is important that, you know, he was an influencer. Imagine if he had Twitter and TikTok. No, man. But what's interesting here too is that by, by all modern standards, this man should not have lived as long as he did. I mean, he drank every Ch- single day, smoked. Chain smoker. Cu- yeah. Chain smoker of like Cuban cigars odd dude in that retrospect but you know when looking at like modern medicine and history it's like this guy lived for a very long time he suffered numerous strokes and heart attacks drank every single day and still lived 80 something years which is crazy but let's uh let's start off you know again this is as always just a simple overview um to get you guys going and get you a little excited about winston churchill but we'll start off with his early life, just kind of childhood and a little bit about his family. And then from there, we'll we'll hop into him climbing his like political ladder. And then I think we'll we'll spend a decent amount of time talking about the pinnacle, I guess, of his career for which he is known, which is um, ultimately World War Two. Uh, and then, you know, we'll come back to his return because he does stop for a little bit there being the prime minister of England, uh, his return and his subsequent death. So let's let's get going. Right. Winston Churchill, like you said, Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. Um, Very aristocratic name there. And, and, and actually, rightfully so, right? Yes. So he was born to an aristocratic family. I mean, a very wealthy father. What's interesting here is that his father and his actually his, his entire family were aristocrats. I mean, his grand, grandfather, great-grandfather. I mean, these guys were House of Lords, very known um, in England. The interesting part here is that it kind of separates him from a lot of these other aristocrats is the fact that his mother was not British. No, right? his mother was um, her was uh, Janine, and she was a daughter of um, Leonard Jerome. He was basically she was wealthy too. She was. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the daughter of a wealthy American businessman, but he was actually half American. Yes, which kind of makes sense when you think about it because he always had a strong. He was very fond of the United yeah. States. You know, he was always viewed very well here. Didn't he used to be on Time Magazine? He was always called like America's favorite Brit and stuff like yep. that. Like the yep, American yep, public yep. liked him. Even when he was kind of like unliked in Britain, they loved him here. Yep. 
Uh, an interesting thing too that's going along with it, like his mother and his upbringing. So his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, right, as a as a known Tory politician, you know, directly descended from John Churchill, first Duke of Marlborough, um, hero of wars against like Louis the Fourteenth of France, early eighteenth century, big family, and the mother, this daughter of this New York financier, as you said, mainly a, a horse racing fanatic actually her his grandfather i guess churchill's grandfather his mother was very adventurous i mean she had tattoos um she was pretty she was young she was american just the sheer fact that she had tattoos was always brought up everywhere i looked like that was so uncouth yeah, i guess not yeah time, like yeah. not right for at the time right for a wife of this lord and it seemed like the marriage wasn't really that great for the most part. They were strange. They, were, they didn't really live together. Actually. Um, to the extent that actually some people believe that Churchill's younger brother may potentially not be his father's son um, because of the fact that the mother and father kind of lived in separate places. And also the father was, and because they, the marriage didn't really work out well, the father wound up um, sleeping around a lot and actually died from syphilis, which which was held back from uh, Churchill for a while. No one let Churchill know that that was the case. But he was basically, um, not really much affection from his mother either. He was basically raised by his devoted nurse. England, most aristocratic children were actually raised by these nurses as opposed to their, their true mothers. Churchill was really raised by Mrs. Everest. He wasn't a greatest student uh, as a kid. And actually, because he wasn't a greatest student, his father kind of pushed him to this idea of like, well, you should therefore enter the military. He had a hard time with that at first, too. He yeah. failed the first few times he tried, and then eventually he gets accepted to the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst on his third attempt, and he became like a cadet in the cavalry. So he's he's starting to do these sorts of things, and his father dies shortly after that, uh, shortly yeah. after he graduates in 1895, which is really crazy when you think of Churchill. He was already like an old man by World War II, right? Like that's when people just remember. Like, yeah. this, here he is like you know, in his 20s in the 1800s. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, like 1890s, yeah, which is yeah, crazy. Like it's, it's it's just like this guy spanned like a long time, yeah. Well, and that's what I'm saying too. Like the fact that he lived, considering his lifestyle for as long as he did, is, is kind of amazing. Um, I think his first heart attack was actually while he was in the White House in the United States visiting um, FDR, which is an interesting tidbit there. You know, what really kind of gets this going, so he, he joins the military, as you said, hard time getting in. He finally gets in, uh, enters the 4th Hussars, uh, and his first action that he sees as a military man is in Cuba. He spends only a couple months in Cuba, but really what, what kind of becomes his niche there is he starts reporting on Cuban War of Independence from Spain for the Daily Graphic, which is a London newspaper. And that kind of starts his love of writing. So although he's there for military purposes, he basically gets this gig with a newspaper in London and starts, you know, um, reporting for them based on what's going on. Um, so then in uh, 1896, the regiment goes to India from Cuba and he sees service here split between being a soldier and a journalist for the Northwest Frontier, uh, another newspaper. And basically this kind of starts to grow his, uh, I guess, career as a military journalist, I would say. Yeah, he did, he does. I'm kind of just going through it pretty quick here, but he went um, to India, like you said. He goes into um, Biden Bloods in um, campaign also, and he's doing mm -hmm. all, basically going all over the place. And he's writing. He's being a correspondent. He's basically a correspondent. Topaz, yeah. He um, he writes some. Uh, he did write some fiction books right during this time yep. too, but not not many. Uh, but he's basically just keeping himself occupied writing, and he's he's in about the military things that he's seeing and corresponding back to people and stuff like that. That's basically what he's doing. He's enjoying it. And it's and it's making a name for himself, really, as you know, yeah, it's a cool role. He's becoming well known, yeah. 
Yes, uh, his writing becomes really well known back in England, um, and also because of, like he remember he's like the rich boy. His his family is of a certain status, and and this guy basically goes to the military, which is not the popular thing you should have done at first. And everyone, you know, you're being groomed to be a politician right away. But because he initially did not really excel in school, military became his trek. And it is once he's in the military, and then he kind of makes himself a name as a war correspondent. This kind of starts to shift from military to politics, right? Yeah. It starts um, like probably the, the beginning of the 20th century that starts to happen when he starts doing yep. that. And he's speaking at conservative meetings and um, he actually um, is selected as one of the two um, candidates for the June 1899 election in Lanchester. Yep. But interesting enough, he starts off as a conservative and then he, but he has a lot of like liberal views, which, which kind of make him, you know, you and I talked about this before we click record, there's times in history when, when Churchill's like really loved and there's times when he's like really hated, you know, like he's a hot and cold kind of character in British history, but also, you know, I, I would say particularly British history, but sometimes world history as well, especially when you get into later on India and the people believe that he was extremely unkind to India and, and essentially caused a famine and so on and so forth. But we might address that later. But um, at this point, he is entering politics as well. Uh, you know, he's also um, campaigning for, even though he's a conservative, he's starting to have these like liberal tendencies. Is He's campaigning for South Africa um, self-governance and so, so on and so forth. And this also where the, this interesting, there's a lot of books written about this uh, against the, Bo- the Boers. Did you Yo, see he this actually, one? Yeah, yeah he, um, he was going to be a, jo- a journalist for the Morning Post in the Second Boer War. And mm-hmm. um, he actually gets... Um, captured as a prisoner of war and he's actually yep. interned at a uh, camp a prisoner of war camp he actually escapes and um he evades his captors he stows away in freight trains and he's hiding in mines and stuff like that and he eventually gets to um portuguese east africa and his like people found out about this it got him a lot of um like mainstream public uh i guess like fame he's attention like, yeah i know yeah. this is this is what kind of made him yeah yeah, yeah. because um, he was a war correspondent that escaped and he's talking about you know how he escaped and so that's kind of out of a movie you know, hiding in yep. freight trains and mines and stuff like that. Candace Millard wrote a book about that. Um, she's written a bunch of really good books. You guys ever get a chance? I forgot the name of the book, but it's Candace Millard. And she writes just about this Boer War. And just the way that, you know, this was so heroic because, again, this is a first of all, when he was captured, he was like, I'm but a soldier. And they knew that, like, no, 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 it's not every day we capture a son of a lord. So, they, yeah, you know, they were deal. trying to hold on to him. And then he escapes with, like, barely any food and then makes his way out. This is publicized all over British newspapers. And then, you know, he doesn't necessarily shy away from it. He he sticks around for a little bit. He's like, well, I'm not going home yet. You know, and it's heroic boyish charm here. But yeah, so this this is the event that kind of makes him a a hero that the kid that didn't need to be in the military is now, you know, escaping POW camps and writing about it. So he comes back and I think that kind of that kind of starts up his political career a little bit, right? Yeah, he rents a house in London, right? And um, yep. he becomes one of the main conservative candidates in October 1900 in the general election. And he actually be, becomes a member of parliament at the age of uh, 25. So he's he's yep. doing this. This is what he's doing. He publishes another book during this time too um, about his uh, South African experiences. So he's, he's going on tours. So he's a pretty well-known figure. He comes to the United States again. He meets uh, Mark Twain, right? President yep. McKinley. There's, uh, he actually meets uh, Teddy Roosevelt too. Uh, from what I saw too, they didn't get along very well. You think of these really? two like very big personalities, but they uh, they didn't exactly go very well. There's a couple of things written about there. But he just 
going on the lecture circuit. So even though he's a member of parliament, he's still promoting his like books and stuff. It's when he comes back in 1901, that's when he really starts to um, do more in the House of Commons, yeah. particularly with, with the, as, as a conservative. Yep. But this is where he starts to shift a little bit because he's, yeah. you know, he's kind of, he's a free trader. Um, he helps find the free um, food league and basically starts to be alienated by his party a little bit. Uh, because for the fact that he's he's talking about better hours for workers and and things that are like really kind of liberal, so because of that he's um, disavowed by his constituents and, and becomes alienated, you know, from his party. And then he winds up in 1904 joining the Liberals. And again, there's the whole flip floppy thing about him, in which eventually he, he kind of comes back to the Conservatives. But um, this at the time. You know, when he wins this election by 1906 as in his new liberal government, you know, he's an undersecretary of the state of colonies. He's viewed as like a flip flopper, you know, like people on his side don't even trust him as much because he's conservative, liberal, conservative. Eventually, by 1908, he is promoted to the president of the Board of Trade, uh, seen in the cabinet, you know, still under this liberal government. What else do we have here? Social reforms. Eight hour maximum day for miners. Um, yeah, and he was going against like spending more money on the military to actually, yep. you know, f- helping these the trade unions and stuff like that. And he was still at this time though he was a big supporter of the navy. He was saying yep. how the navy was going to be the most important thing. That any extra money from the military should go to the navy. And people, particularly in his party at the time, weren't weren't fond of that. Yep. Yeah, he becomes you saw the president of the board of trade. So he was that mm-hmm. for a while, and he's doing all of these sorts of things. Um, until he's eventually, like you said, voted out of power. Yep. Uh, and I think World War One uh, is kind of interesting. Yeah, we can probably skip to World War One now, yeah. There's other well, things yeah. going on, but... Yeah, yeah, but World War One is interesting because starting from the Gallipoli campaign, where he's kind of set up for failure, really. It's interesting because a lot of people don't realize that Churchill actually fought in World War One, And this is, as in, like, commanded people and units, which is, which is kind of cool. When World War One began, he started off as the as the uh, Lord of Admiralty, right? That was really his yeah. job at the onset of the war, and he was kicked out of this job. Though, essentially, they said that he kind of failed initially being prepared or having Britain prepared for World War One. So the Conservative government uh, demotes him from the Admiralty. They don't know what to do with him once they demote him. So what they do is they put him in charge of the Gallipoli campaign. Real quick, it was an Anglo-French operation against Turkey, just so we're on the same page as to what Gallipoli is, because that in itself could be a podcast. Yeah, they don't give him any direction. They're like, all right, you're no longer the, you don't longer have the admiralty. You're not in charge of that. However, you're going to be in charge of this one particular aspect of this war. This goes badly. So Winston Churchill fails at Gallipoli. And at that point, he winds up, um, the press is kind of vilifying him. It's like, all right, Admiral at one point, demoted, put in charge of this operation, screws it up. A lot of British people die. Churchill's like, you know, I can't take this. In November of 1915, he resigns from the government and winds up actually returning to just like good old soldiering. He sees active service in France as a lieutenant colonel of the six Royal Scots Fusiliers, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he was there. He was um, <clears throat> fighting in the, in the war and commanding the soldiers Trenches, there. Yep. Yeah, and then actually when um, Asquire resigns as prime minister and Lloyd George becomes um, prime minister in 1917, um, Churchill comes back into everything, right? Yep, yep. But by then, almost like he saved himself a little bit by going and fighting in war, saying, you know what? I quit the government. If you think I'm at fault here, which he actually wasn't per se. Um, No, it wasn't his fault. Yep. He he goes back to to being a soldier. And and again, that kind of makes people – 
I guess endears more people to him. Like, all right, all yeah, right. The working class, what they're gonna be. Yeah. He's he's you know he's yeah, he's one, one of us. us yeah, so. yeah. That's but all right, like you said, so he comes back, right? And the big thing he does is he becomes then the minister of uh, munitions, right? And he puts an yep. end to a strike in a munitions factory or basically saying, if you don't go back to work, I'm going to um, conscript, which means basically like force all of the strikers into the army. So like even work in the factory or you're going to go fight in the front lines. Which one do you want to do? So they're like, yep. oh, crap. So they all went back to work. Yep. And um, so he starts doing that. And then in the House of Commons, he voted in support of the Rep- uh, Representation of People's Act of 1918, which gave some British women the right to vote. Which I know is like, some, yeah. He was actually very yeah, much some. like anti-suffrage. Based, I mean, his mom apparently was very much anti-suffrage, and she used to have a lot of pamphlets around the house and all that stuff when he was little. And apparently, he was kind of—that's one of those things that people or historians look at and they're like, "Ah, uh, this guy didn't necessarily want women yeah. to have too many rights." Yeah. So, in a kind of World War One ends, and he's you know he's a pretty known politician, I would say. But then he he loses, right? Well, yeah, well, he was he was um, conservative majority. Um, Lloyd George was retained as a prime minister, and he moved Churchill to the um, War Office, right? Mm-hmm. Secretary of War and a Secretary State of War. So it was his job to kind of like um, demobilize the British Army. Yep. Right. Uh, but he kind of said he was still being very cautious. You can see that again. You know, we know what happens later on, but he's saying that we need to keep like a million men for the British Army. Um, he's one of the few governments he did not want a harsh penalty against Germany, right, with the Treaty yep. of Versailles. He cautioned against it, warned that it might you know, lead to another war. Uh, he also said this, and he wanted Germany to be strong because, you know, we have to walk, watch out for Soviet Russia, right? Oh, he, he was like such he, an anti-communist. Oh, yeah, he's communist, and he did not yep. trust Lenin and anything like that. So he supported anything, anything you know, like the white forces and in the, in the, against the red forces in Russia and stuff like that. Yep. But um, he... Recognize the British people weren't ready for that, you know. So he was like, "Fine," um, but yeah, like he was, he was kind of saw what would, could possibly come on the horizon. Yeah. There. So he was definitely talking about that quite a bit. Wait, he gets kicked out of Parliament in 1922. You're right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he gets he gets kicked out, and from 1922 to 29, he kind of focuses on writing more so than anything else. But this is also when he starts like this new he you know they call it um, constitutionalist, but really it's a it's like a disguised conservative label. You know what I mean? Like he's not fully conservative, um, although he's starting to get some conservative support. Basically, this is the shift in the 20s from being the, the liberal guy, which was, you know, the traitor to his class because he's like the wealthy and conservative, you know, background. Um, he kind of starts shifting to being more conservative, you know, and definitely a pro-conservative leadership. There's also viewed as a, as a big nationalist, uh, obviously, you know, he's he's all about Britain at this point. But he, for the most part in the 20s, he spends his 20s, um, not his 20s, but in 1920s. Uh, he writes. He writes books. He gets published numerous times. He also paints. A lot of people don't know that he was a painter, and he never actually signed any of his paintings with his own name. He came up with a different name, and he at one point there was a gallery that he actually wound up selling uh, quite a few of his paintings, and people did not really know that it was him that painted them, which I thought was kind of interesting, right? Churchill yeah. painting, drinking and painting. What happens in the you know twenties turning into well, 30. he um. The, well, he's he loses money in the Wall Street crash, right? We talked yes. that we can. So he goes on this big lecture tour in North America, hoping to recoup some of these things. And it's actually he's in New York City. He's crossing Fifth Avenue. And he gets hit by a car, and actually Crazy. suffers a suffers a head wound, 
All right. Um, he gets really depressed about his financial and political losses. Please are these lectures. And he's just having like a hard time with, with things. He's like, you know, this is what is my life becoming? So he's like, he goes and um, decides to visit his ancestors' battlefield. So he stays there. And he stays at, he, while he's staying at a hotel in Munich, he met this one guy named um, Ernest um, Hansfingel, right? Mm-hmm. Hansfeld, am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. Who's actually a acquaintance of Hitler. Who was in Rising in Providence, and he actually, uh, he actually tried to arrange a meeting between Hitler and Churchill, but Hitler was unenthusiastic and wanted to what I talked to him about, right? And then Churchill yeah. also was raising concerns about Hitler's anti-Semitism. So, well, that was um, the thing. He started really. He was the yeah. first one that was writing during the 30s, like, ah, uh, this is not okay. This is not okay. And, and a lot of people say that, you know, he kind of looked at the parallels between Louis the Fourteenth and uh, Germany and this, you know, rise of Nazis and Hitler, and it's learning from history. You know, this is the aspect. Like at the end of the day, Churchill is not just a writer of, of, of fiction; he's really a writer of history. He's a historian per se. You know, kind of yes. up in our, you know, in our sphere of of things that we like to do. But yeah, so he's seeing the parallels, and he's seeing that you know this Hitler guy is really not a good guy, and he starts openly criticizing not necessarily just hitler he's criticizing britain and the allies and what is not not league of nations yeah league of nations right yeah league of nations yeah league of nations um for failing to stop um you know the nazi advance and also um at this point you know, it's not just the nazis i mean we're talking about 30s so we're talking about mussolini we're talking about tojo and and we're talking about japan also rising up so he's he's talking about these things and not just talking about writing and being very critical of very the outspoken world, about it, yeah, yeah, allowing this to happen. I guess we can fast forward then, right? Going in with all of this, right? Yeah. So all what's going on in the world, and then what's basically, you know, Hitler comes to power. So it would have been interesting if Hitler and Churchill met, like before they became Hitler and Churchill, right? You know what I mean, like as like history knows them as. But um, in thirty-seven, right, um, Neville Chamberlain becomes prime minister. Yeah. And at first, Churchill was like, "Oh, this Chamberlain's a good guy." But then when you start seeing all the things that he's doing with impeachment, particularly of like Mussolini at first, mm-hmm. um, and then extending it towards Hitler, Churchill's like, we can't be doing this. This is not going to go well. Like you said, he was already talking about, listen, like, you know, Germany is violating the Treaty of Versailles here. They're increasing their air force. They're soon going to um, have more airplanes than we are here, and they're going to outproduce us. He's like, that's a problem. And people are like, no, it's fine. It's not a big deal. But he's like, no, trust me, this is going to be an issue. Yeah. So... Right, and it comes to it comes to a head, I guess, September thirtieth when Chamberlain um, signs the Munich Agreement, um, which this is kind of the famous one. I, a lot of people yeah. you could see this, you know, you see this on YouTube clips and whatnot. When you have Chamberlain with this little paper where he gets out of the airplane, he's like, "I just have a signed paper from Hitler. There'll be no more war." But not really, right? Uh, this is kind of the pinnacle when Churchill more or less turns against Chamberlain. But what's interesting yeah. and an interesting is Churchill event, told him, right? Churchill yep. told him that we should, um, if he says, if she's telling Chamberlain, like, tell him if you invade Czechoslovakia, we're going to war. Yeah. And Chamberlain refused to do that. So that's what, like, Hitler was kind of worried about, too. Like, if they declare war, he, they weren't able to fight in 37, basically. Yeah, but, absolutely. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, so war really starts, obviously, everyone knows, um, September 1st, 1939. Um you have Germany invades Poland. Within a couple of days, Britain declares war on Germany. And Chamberlain reappoints Churchill as the first Lord of Admiralty, right? Because this, he did this yes. already. This, is, this used to be his job. And he gives him a spot on his war cabinet. Like the main people right from the beginning that really led uh, this, I want to say, assault. 
because it wasn't an assault. We all, you know, historians know this as the phony war. I would say preparation for England to be able to fight another day because during this particular time, England is ultimately declaring war on Germany, but not really doing much with regards to actually fighting war against Germany. They're, they're particularly more concentrating more on their ability to prepare themselves for the inevitable attack. Doesn't Chamberlain step down? He resigns. I'm almost positive. He resigns, basically, in the early hours of, like, they invade Belgium, the Netherlands, right? So it's before their assault on France. Remember, Churchill, before this, he wants to mine the waters around Norway. But he's mm-hmm. kind of like, because he wants to, we can't let them take Norway, but it keeps on getting delayed because it's not being supported. And it was delayed in, uh, until April 8th, which is the day before the Germans invaded Norway. So Norway falls to the Germans. Yep. And then uh, it was basically, there was this vote that's saying like, you know, we don't think Chamberlain can do this anymore. Yeah, it was and like a vote were, of no confidence. Yeah, vote of no confidence. The only two candidates was Churchill or Lord Herf, Lord Halifax, right? Halifax, yep. the foreign yep. secretary. And they basically decide that it's going to be Churchill. Yep. Churchill uh, becomes a House of Lords, basically recommends him. So uh, advised the king to send for Churchill. And then Churchill later wrote that, you know, he was just, he was, he had a, a sense of relief that he now had the authority over the whole scene. Right. And he believed yep. he was walking with destiny. That's what he says. You know, that his whole life was preparing for this hour, for this trial. Like he's ready for it. So he was very confident in his abilities at this point. Yep. Yeah, and, and again, politically, though, it's interesting because he's kind of shunned. Yeah. yeah, he was kind of shunned by both the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party, a Labour Party. You know, I mean, the idea was that, like, this guy was, his, he, like, almost didn't fit any of the molds. Anyway, he right away goes about establishing a war cabinet. And basically, yeah. as the war progressed, the cabinet kind of changes. But ultimately, how do we, you know, how do we resolve to continue fighting? That's ultimately what this is about. Um, this is also when you have like a crisis, you have Dunkirk that happens and France falls much quicker than anybody anticipated France to fall, uh, which causes a problem because France is Britain's biggest ally in mainland Europe. So when France, the British army is there. The British, yes. there's 300,000 British troops over there. That's that Dunkirk are trying to help by. and protect. Um, yeah. And they just get you know, France. Yeah. They get forced off the island. Forced off so at this point, Europe. at this point, guys, you could pause and go watch Dunkirk. Good movie. Did you see yeah. Dunkirk? Yeah, I saw Dunkirk. I, th- I thought it was pretty good. So anyway, you have Operation Dynamo, which is basically Dunkirk, uh, France Falls, and you have the British troops being evacuated from France, from the beaches of Dunkirk, um, so they could, as the saying goes, um, fight another day. This is also when um, Churchill gives this famous speech, the We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech um, that afternoon, which is an awesome speech, really. Some people say it wasn't him that gave that speech, that it was recorded, that it was like somebody else that did it, or some people say he was drunk during it. There's a lot. But, you know, it's a, it's a very cool speech. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh, yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts 
or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. You guys should look it up. It's pretty good stuff. All right. And that's kind of what brings us to, well, a few things here. You have one is that at this point when Dunkirk happens, Mussolini kind of sees England as weak. So, you know, Italy's like, hey, you know what, we're going to go and we're going to attack some uh, some of the British colonies in Africa. So then that happens. So that kind of brings the British to the fight in North Africa. Also, Churchill realizes that while the Atlantic is really kind of taken over by the Axis powers, primarily by German U-boats, um, he decides that he needs, in order to hold on to North Africa, he needs control of the Mediterranean Sea. So he basically concentrates the British Navy in the Mediterranean Sea. It's also interesting here, there's one th- event that happens that is to this day is kind of controversial because the British Navy goes into the Mediterranean, south of France, and there is a French Navy there. And basically, the British Navy tells the French Navy, like, you got to give up your ships. And the you know, French Navy is like, well, we're not going to do that. We need to understand also that by this time, that area of France is known as Vichy France, meaning that they yeah. are favorable to um, Hitler to the and Nazis, the Nazis. Yeah, taking yeah. over. Yeah, the British Navy opens fire and sinks a lot of ships, French ships, and kills a lot of French sailors. Churchill excused that as we couldn't allow this French fleet to fall into the hands of the Germans, which was potentially or highly likely going to happen. But some people say that was a war crime. On you know, it's like a blemish on Churchill's war record that he sank this French fleet. They were supposed to be friends, um, but at that point, they they were not. Um, it's all saying that we're at war. We got to do what we got to do. Yep. And he really, you know, Churchill really endears himself to in the hearts of the British people, primarily for the fact that it really he makes England survive through the Battle of Britain and also establishes the Land Lease Act um, with which huge, FDR, yeah. which is what preserves England. Right. So what happens Battle of Britain? I mean, why, why does Battle of Britain such a, um, you know, oh, it's basically it's defending, it's defending the... Um the air over Great Britain, right? It's it's a way to, they know that if they lose the air cover, right? If they lose the air, then Britain could theoretically be invaded. Like Britain, um, Germany did have Operation Sea Lion, right? That plan mm-hmm. to invade Great Britain. Like, would it be successful? Who knows? It wasn't easy. Wouldn't be easy to invade Great Britain. If you look yep. back historically, I'm going to say that probably he didn't really want Hitler. Probably didn't really ever think he was going to actually invade Britain. He thought he could just starve them out. He actually wanted Britain on his side more than anything else. And there were yep. pro, I wouldn't say pro-Nazi, but pro-peace terms, let's say, with Britain. You know, that there were parties yep. there that won't do that, but he knew that wasn't going to happen with Churchill in power, right? So that's why Battle of Britain becomes so important because, you know, it's the Luftwaffe coming in, bombing uh, the Blitz, as we know, right? Attacking all the and this British is also and stuff like that. Like what, a lot of times uh, what comes up here, and we should probably bring it up as well, is the fact that this is the first real coordinated usage of radar. Oh, right. Well, that's um, what I was going to get to. Yeah. Like the, right. this is when they're coordinating because the British have such less resources than the Germans. So they're coordinating. They, they're able to use radar to really send their, you know, spitfires and hurricane fighters right at the Luftwaffe at certain points. And the British uh, the, are able to meet them in disguise at the right moment. And it's, it becomes a war of attrition that yep. the British can't survive, but they're going to try to survive long enough. Right. Just to have yep. enough losses that then Germany's going to be like, it's not worth it anymore. And that's basically what happens. And because Britain kind of, Germany just kind of gets annoyed with Britain. All right. They're bombing them. They're bombing. They're even targeting the um, the radar towers. They're targeting the RAF headquarters. And they're, they're, if they, if you look back militarily, they say that 
if Germany kept that up, they probably could have just bombed Britain into submission long term. But Hitler was becoming so impatient that he launches Operation Barbarossa, which is an invasion of Soviet Union instead. And that's a whole podcast too. And as I was doing research for this, you saw, and I remember hearing this before, that the British tried to warn Stalin about it. Numerous they actually, times. Yeah. They said, listen, we, we broke, we, we have Enigma, Enigma descriptions, uh, we decrypted yeah. it, we know they're planning to invade you. And then Stalin's like, I don't trust it. I don't trust Churchill. Yeah. And he, so he's trying to tell them. And then, you know, people asked, um, Churchill afterwards, you know, are you going to like, are you, and so I still, are you still anti-communist? He's like, listen, if Hitler invaded hell, I would make a favorable reference to the devil. <laughs> so he's, yeah, you know, he still doesn't like the the Russians at all, but he's like, listen, it's kind of what Roosevelt, it's the same thing that Roosevelt says. Roosevelt yeah. says the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Only he says it a That's little more colorfully, I guess you could say. So ultimately what ends up happening here is Stalin joins the fray as part of the allies. And all of a sudden you have this massive propaganda campaign in the United States and Britain to kind of erase the fact that Stalin and um, and Hitler really we're started the war together. The war. Yeah. yeah, started this war together and by dividing Poland in September of 1939 and then Stalin's forces invaded Norway. I mean, these are things that are just trying to be erased now. Like, uh, no, Uncle Joe, good guy, yay. However, what winds up happening is, we kind of alluded to this, this idea of the Land Lease Act. Uh, so the British and American governments conclude this this deal, or like destroyers for bases agreement, where basically initially it starts off with 50 American destroyers are transferred to the Royal Navy in exchange for um, U.S. base rights in Bermuda, Caribbean, Newfoundland. You have to understand that when the war started, when Churchill took over, I guess, in the beginning of the war, England is still the biggest empire in the world. As we know now, from history, England ceases to be the biggest empire in the world by the end of this war, and the United States comes out on top with Soviet Union, you know, right on their heels. But right there, yeah. So, so Churchill's actually kind of watching the end of the British Empire here, and the Land Lease Act is he's allowing Americans to to use bases around the world that in areas that England had once taken over as part of their empire. So it's almost like the United States is is making a deal to not buy, but barter an empire. You know what I mean? Like we never had to take yeah. over these areas because the British did. We, we just, just got, got them. Got They're them. Like, yeah, we just got them. Like if you want our help, this yeah, is what we're, we, want this this. Is what we're, we want for it. This, this is our payment. You know? um, you, you, you'll survive, but you're not going to have your empire. Exactly. And that's kind of what we do. We slowly chip away and get Britain's empire. And, and Churchill knows that this is a terrible deal, but he needs the help we're getting. We're talking about uh, providing all necessities that Great Britain needed. So it's this it turns into not just destroyers and uh, military things, but also food. I mean, it, it really was anything. Instead of monetary payment, we are giving them tanks. We're giving them ammo. We're giving them food. We're giving them uh, you name it. You know, like the whole idea of we're rationing back in America. Uh, we're rationing so we could give a lot of this stuff to Europe. So land lease also extends to Soviet Union as well. Again, so the United States produces most of the stuff that these countries lack at this current time during the war. And then, the, you know, something happens that actually makes Churchill very happy, perhaps unhappy for us, but Pearl Harbor yes. happens, right? Pearl Harbor happens, yes. Brings the United States into the war, which ultimately allows Churchill and Roosevelt to finally be official about something that they pretty much had going for quite a while now, which is this friendship of mutual benefit, would you say? Yeah, well, they they, they decide that Hitler's going to be the main threat. They got to go after Hitler yep. first. And this is going to, there's a lot of other stuff that happens. I think this isn't like just a, uh, the World War II, I guess, uh, podcast on um, Churchill, right? 
Yep. But the war is going on. He meets several times with um, Stalin. Well, he meets Stalin a couple times personally. He never really gets along very well with Stalin. He eats Molotov quite a few times. And where they're basically stressing this, and we need a second front, right? Especially yep. in 42, 43, things are not going well for uh, the allies at that point. The tide starts to shift a little bit with El Alamein, right? With St- and Stalingrad and things of that nature. Uh, the one thing I kind of just want to mention, uh, you know, while this is happening, is when the United States enters the war, essentially it enters the war because, as we know, uh, Japan attacks. Um, Hawaii then invades the Philippines. They also wind up invading the Channel Islands. Oh, you know, there's Singapore falls to the Japanese. So Japan doesn't really care whether they're taking British things or American things no, yeah. in the Pacific. They they're just taking things. Yeah. Um, and while this is happening, while Japan is invading all these areas, this is one of those, another one of these blemishes on Churchill's rule is ultimately the Bengal um, famine of 1943, right? Yes. The Bengal was a province of British India during World War II, and they say that an estimated 2.1 to 3.8 million Bengals perished out of the population of 60 million uh, from starvation, malaria, and other disease aggravated by malnutrition population issues. But massive food shortages prompted India to wind up asking um, London and particularly uh, Churchill for any grain imports. At first, the colonial authorities in Britain were very slow to recognize this and how serious this this famine was. Um, so at first, he Churchill supposedly, well, not supposedly, he did. He refused to approve more imports. Eventually, he, he does, it, though. Yeah. yeah, and eventually he does. Eventually, he's like, oh, okay, it's bad. So he starts bringing more grains and more food. But the initial no that came from Churchill is today viewed, particularly in India, as kind of, com- not that they compare, I guess they do compare him kind of to Hitler in certain points that he's helping propagate this famine. All right. So war kind of, kind of shifts after Stalingrad. Uh, Russia is basically fighting the war for most of the allies. Uh, Winston Churchill, th- this point um, out of the three, you have Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. Winston uh, does not like Stalin. He was always anti-communist since, you know, 20, 30 years before this. The, they're considered the big three. So Stalin gets upset. He wants that second front you mentioned. Churchill convinces uh, FDR initially to start that second front through an invasion of Italy by saying that if we invade Italy, it's a soft underbelly of the Axis, and if Italy undoubtedly withdraws from the war, that will be a massive blow to the German morale, that they will be the only ones left, so we need to go that route. And they do. Um, The United States and British forces, um, with numerous coalition forces, attack Sicily and then attack Italy. Stalin's still not happy, which kind of puts another damper in the whole British-American soviet relationship because he says that's not really a second front um which leads to 1944's invasion of france by then churchill though at home he's about to be voted out of office i mean that one that's for sure he's allowing and really persevering in the sense that britain is surviving this war however it's surviving this war at a tremendous cost it's cost yeah they're not going to be the same coming out of it no. And the British people are starting to see that. Like America t- is taken over. This becomes, by 44, it becomes obvious that Churchill is just there to sur- make Britain survive. But this is no longer a British war. Um, this is an American and Soviet war against Led war the Axis against powers. Nazism, yeah. Yeah. So what ultimately winds up happening, I mean, you have the 
Potsdam conference, the Tehran conference, you have all these conferences between these people. Where they're not, playing the post-war world, yeah. And again, it becomes evident that Britain is not going to come out of this. They're going to be a victor, but they're not going to be like a victor. All right, so I guess we should uh, talk about the fact that he is, he, def- he never actually makes the, the final conference because he is not reelected. Right. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't get there. So, well, he's there when um, Germany surrenders, right? Yeah, for VE Day and stuff like that. But obviously, he's not going to be the next um, prime minister. Yep. So he has a conference. He's basically out of power, but he's still leader of the opposition powers. Really, is when he's like we said before, he loses popularity a lot in England at this point. But he's still yep. really popular in the United States. So Attlee takes over as the new prime minister in 1945. And Churchill basically, like, he's, like kind of goes on a speaking tour, really, at that point, yeah. right? Just saying, as, yeah, as for, people, for, for people who, yeah, for people who still like him. Like, he likes the applause and stuff like that, as anybody would. He's um, calling for what he calls, like, United States of Europe, like a pan, uh, pan-Europeanism. Pan Well, he talks about the European Union, yeah. Yeah, basically like a European, European Union, Union, that it would be very helpful if there was something like this, that, you, that Europe needs to like, come together. Adley, who is the Labour Party leader, takes over majority Labour government, um, for, forms the first majority Labour government in 45. Some reasons given for Churchill's defeat. One was a desire for post-war reform. You know, they're, they're, they said that this was idea that like, okay, we're in peace now. Like we need to, we need to uh, reform. Yeah. He was a wartime leader. Now we need a peacetime leader. Exactly. Exactly. While he's in the opposition party, there's during this time in 1946 that he basically goes to the United States. And on his trip to the U.S. in 1946, he is um, invited to Missouri um, by then president of the United States, Perry Truman, whom we did a podcast on. And that's when he gives his famous Iron Curtain speech, saying that the USSR has created this Eastern Bloc and an Iron Curtain has fallen across the continent. Is this term is coined and, and remains there really to this day, but primarily till 1989 when um, Soviet Union kind of starts falling apart. So yeah, so kind of does this thing. He he paints again. He drinks and he writes. I mean, a lot of this time is spent writing. And then what winds up happening in 1951? Um, he becomes prime minister again. <laughs> he becomes prime minister again. Yeah, at 77. Uh, so he's not in good health. But yeah, no, no, no. Uh, he was also the first prime minister under Queen Elizabeth II. Um, There's actually pictures of a much younger Queen Elizabeth. I mean, we think of Queen Elizabeth, you know. Still around. Much older. But yeah, she's still around. There's pictures of her with Churchill, yeah. Yeah. With young Prince Charles, even. And, you know, this was kind of interesting, too, because during this time, it's a very unpopular thing. Because in 1951 to 55, it's almost like England economically is in a lot of debt. England as a world power is basically in a process of stepping down as a world power. They are demilitarizing. Um, so he's kind of overseeing a shrinkage, you know, I mean, a British power. Um, and that's kind of what he, he's associated with during this time. Like he's, he's England is shrinking. Its role is shrinking. So is his health, technically, you know, to be well, quite was, frank. Yeah. Uh, he suffers a, a pretty bad stroke in, in 53. Actually, it, they say it was so bad it took him out for like six months. Paralyzed, partially paralyzed on one side. Uh, and everyone's like, this guy can't really be prime minister anymore. But at the same time, people have this like endearing, you know, he's, he's like a symbol more so than anything else. He winds up recuperating more or less from the stroke, but it gets to the point that it's apparent to everyone that he can no longer really be the prime minister. So he winds up resigning um, 
himself. He retires uh, in April of 1955, and he gives the premiership to his deputy, um, Eden. Eden, yeah. Yep. After that, he does, I mean, this guy goes on to live for like another 10 years. So he basically what, goes around. Yeah. yeah. So he's going around. He's giving like speeches and stuff like that. He's still out there, right? People are still yeah. aware of him. He actually is offered um, to become the Duke of London, but he declined this because his sons ran off. He's like, maybe you don't want to do this and stuff like that. Yeah. When he was 87, he had a fall in Monte Carlo. He broke his hip, right? He was flown yeah. home to London Hospital where he remained there for a while. Like the JFK yeah. in 63 yeah. made him an honorary citizen of the United States. Yeah. Act of Congress. I was going to say that, but he was unable to attend because he just broke his hip, right? Yeah. And um, you know, he, yeah, because of all this, they said he was he was yeah. very depressed in his final years because he was just like he couldn't do what he was used to doing. You know, this is a guy who yeah. always liked to be active and be around. So he said he had a lot of depression. Yeah, uh, and his final stroke came uh, um, literally final stroke, January twelfth, nineteen sixty five. Um, he had his he had another stroke, and he winds up dying twelve days later on January twenty fourth, nineteen sixty five. It's actually the 70th anniversary of his father's death. Interesting. They actually had a plan, the British, in 1953 under the codename Operation Hope Not, that um, a detailed plan on like how to conduct a state funeral for Churchill. Like they actually yeah. planned this out. So they had his, his death. For 10 years. Yeah, planned, yeah, planned out. Uh, yeah, his coffin lay in a Westminster Hall for three days. Then the ceremony was at St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, then it was taken, right? Put on a boat, River Thames uh, to Waterloo Station, and then special train to family plot, uh, St. Martin's Church, and to his birthplace, right, when he where he's finally buried. Numerous memorials to Churchill around the world. The wartime cabinet rooms uh, in London have been renamed to Churchill Museum and Cabinet War Rooms. Churchill College, Cambridge, uh, was established as a national memorial. I mean, Churchill is, we said at the beginning, he's a huge, huge figure. I mean, do you, do you have anything else about... Winston Churchill? I think we kind of talked. I know we usually like to end these things with like fun facts, but we kind of like touched on probably like a lot of them. Yeah. As we went through. So, yeah, I mean, I think like what we said, he's just one of these figures that people know Churchill. I would say he's probably one of the most famous, um, the most famous like um, Brit of the 20th century, right? Yeah, I would say so. Um, He also won a Nobel Peace Prize for his writing. Again, it just Nobel Peace Prize in literature. This guy, not just writing, but really his mastery of historical description, you know, as a historian. Folks, if you just want to look at his quotes, like one of the quotes I like, I just saw from him is, um, personally, I'm always ready to learn, although I don't always like being taught. Nah. Like as a teacher, that's one of those quotes out there, you know? Well, uh, that concludes our podcast on Winston Churchill. Once in a while, we like to do those, um, you know, get a person and talk about a person. And it's been a while since we talked about a person. So it's yeah, been a while that we did one. Yeah, yeah like so that. it seemed fitting. Um, for everyone out there, guys, uh, thank you so much for listening, as always. If you need to contact us, you could find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. Um, you know, send us an email, suggestions, comments, whatever. Uh, make sure you click subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. And again, thank you so much. We'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com.
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.